I'm the Reverend Kat Bonakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast. The thing about actually having a cancer diagnosis is you go through a door and you don't ever get to turn around and go out again. Today on the Holy Holy Podcast, we are talking about cancer. One in two men in the United States and one in three women will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives. Some will die of it, but many, as our modern life and medicine continues to expand and improve, will live with it. And so today, we wanted to talk about how it is that we live with cancer in our lives, in our bodies, and in our religious communities. For those of you who are returning to listen to this episode of the Holy Holy Podcast, thank you for being with us again. We're looking at moving to an exciting new production schedule of a new episode once a month, and in between, launching bits of interviews that were too long for the full episodes, but we think are still great content. We're calling these portions holier bits, so listen for them and watch as they come across your podcast provider in between the full episodes. I want to thank many of you also for participating in our online listener survey. Some of you wrote in asking about where were the Buddhists, where were the Hindus in the first episode? And that's a great question. The Abrahamic traditions, Muslims, Christians, and Jews have a couple things in common that make interfaith dialogue a lot easier to start with. One is that they are all people of the book, meaning they are scripture-based traditions. In fact, all three have some stories and scriptures in common. They're also monotheistic, saying that there's one God, and they all meet for common worship in congregations with a leader. These things make it easier to do interfaith dialogue and projects so that our panelists are able to take more things as common starting points and spend more time talking about the issue of the day and less time explaining how and why their communities operate in the ways that they do. This isn't to say that at some point in the future we won't have non-Abrahamic participants. In fact, we hope to. But for now, we're going to do the Abrahamic and see where it goes. To help us think about cancer and frame it, we're going to have three segments today. We're starting with Dr. Scott Egner, who's an oncologist and urologist at the University of Chicago, to help us define what cancer is. Then we'll speak with Suzanne Wagner, who you heard a bit of in the beginning, who has had cancer twice and continues to live with the effects of it in her life. And then we will turn to our esteemed panel. This week, we're joined by Rabbi Andrea London of Beth Emmett in Evanston, Imam Malik Mujahid, formerly of the Parliament of World Religions, now an imam here in the Chicago area, and the Reverend Julian DeChazier pastor of University Church in Hyde Park. To help us get on a common definition and understanding of what cancer is in its many forms, we begin with Scott Egner. Our bodies are constantly renewing themselves and we have cellular growth. 
And all cancer is, is a runaway cell or population of cells that there's no roadblock and it keeps growing until it forms a tumor, which can start causing symptoms. And then eventually it can start spreading to other parts of the body. And at some point it can eventually overwhelm the body and that's ultimately metastatic cancer and what people end up dying from. So any of us would have these rogue cells going on at any point in our bodies. It's just a matter of when they gather enough steam. Yes, you and I are sitting here now with quote-unquote cancer cells in our body, most of which will never manifest themselves, and our body has figured out ways to stop them. But every cell in our body is constantly undergoing regeneration, renewal, growth, and cancer is ultimately a process of breakdown within our body that leads to runaway growth of cells. Within the U.S., there's a fairly high incidence of cancer, one in two men, one in three women. And our perceptions of cancer in a public way are that it tends to be fatal. But that's not necessarily the case, particularly in your specialty of urology and prostate cancer. Absolutely. So there's an epidemic of cancer, particularly in industrialized worlds. Part of that has to do with environment. Part of it has to do with our lifestyle. Part of it has to do that we go looking for it more often. And it's a really essential point that many people with cancer, quote unquote, never needed to know about it because they would have lived a full, rich life without the cancer ever causing symptoms or problems. But there are many cancers that eventually cause problems, cause symptoms, come to attention. And the other thing that's led to this epidemic of cancer is we're growing older. I mean, over the course of the last century, estimated life expectancy of U.S. men and women has basically doubled. And as you get older and less people are dying of heart disease and other conditions, probably the single biggest risk factor for developing cancer is age. Now that we have a sense of what the science and the definitions are that we're dealing with, I want to turn to an interview with Suzanne Wagner. Suzanne has had two bouts of the same kind of breast cancer. And at the time of the interview, a good friend of hers had just died of the same kind of cancer. I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer a little over 10 years ago, which put me in my early 40s. Well, I actually had two lumpectomies because after the first lumpectomy, uh, they didn't get clean margins, so they um, went in again. And then I had close to two months of daily radiation. It was the left breast, and I had full left chest radiation and kind of up under the arm. And I did not have to do chemo, which was lovely. About seven years later, I was diagnosed with a recurrence. The exact same area, pathology report showed it was like the same cancer. And I was stunned because I didn't know how something could be radiated every day for a couple of months and survive. Um, But it did. And um, so that time around, we decided to do a double mastectomy. There is a bit of randomness about it. You can do all the right things. And um, because it is all just statistical in the end in terms of what they know about treatments, um, there's always someone who ends up on the wrong side of the statistics. It feels very random to me that I'm here and my friend was 
You know, we had our memorial service just a couple of weeks ago. Knowing that you had the recurrence seven years later, knowing your friend got a terminal recurrence, does it make you feel like you're always waiting for the inevitable? I think I've always felt that way, even before my initial diagnosis, because there was premenopausal breast cancer on both sides of my family. My maternal grandmother died in her 30s, not long after my mother was born. I've always been waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's certainly been intensified. The thing about actually having a cancer diagnosis is you go through a door and you don't ever get to turn around and go out again. Nothing bad may happen on the other side of the door once you get through it all, but you don't ever get to go back. Even if there was an anticipation, it's not the same as when you finally actually do get cancer. Broadly or specifically, how would you say that cancer changed your sense of your relationship to God? Um, It didn't. (laughs) Um, Somehow God never factored into it. I I didn't feel that it was... uh, something that God had any particular interest in. If God was interested in something about me, it wasn't, it wasn't whether or not I had breast cancer. So it didn't, I, and I think that may be very unusual for someone who um, has actually been a pretty faithful person for most of my adult life. I never had a questioning of God, was not an issue. And were you part of a religious community during treatment at all, or was that at a different point in your life? So I've been a practicing Episcopalian uh, since my late 20s. I grew up one Jewish parent, one Christian parent, brought up in the Unitarian Church, the Church of Mixed Marriages, went to a Quaker boarding school, and then um, was baptized and became a practicing Episcopalian in my 20s. I don't think I was part of any parish regularly at the time when I had my first diagnosis. The recurrence, I was very much part of a community, and actually... A few days prior to the double mastectomy, um, we did a laying on of hands at the church with the priest and friends and family and some of the members of the healing community, which was pretty evangelical. I think that's probably not a really Episcopalian tradition, (laughs) but I don't know. In our parish, it was wonderful. That was a lovely way for me to go into. And and actually, the physical touching was really um, wonderful. And then one of the most wonderful things that happened was probably, you know, a little over 24 hours out of the surgery, and it was a Sunday morning, and I was pretty bleary. And a member of my parish came. And it wasn't someone in the parish that I was really close to. It was someone I saw all the time, but not someone I knew well. And he not only brought communion, but he brought me a Starbucks coffee. Because I'm known in my parish for always having my cup of Starbucks with me at the beginning of the service. And it was my first coffee post-surgery. And it wouldn't have felt right to have communion without my coffee. That was very moving to me. And what a neat experience of 
somehow being known within a community, even in a way that you didn't know? I have been surprised by the fact that, for me, physical illness has not been totally tied up with questions of theology or good and evil or whatever. Illness feels like it is a very natural process. It may not be a great one, but it is a very natural process. Questions of faith community, though, feel very important because the faith community is all about actually living. Uh, And maybe I'm very lucky about the faith community that I'm part of, but knowing that there was a place where I could go where whether things were awful or good or I had no breasts, whatever, it was okay. And that the faith community is not afraid to talk about illness and death. It is a natural part of the whole process. There's almost something nice about not being special in that way, right? Like, yeah, yes, you are special and you are known, but this aspect of you, it's just not that novel or, or not that important within the broader narrative. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm the Reverend Kat Benakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast. Today on the Holy Holy Podcast, we are talking about cancer. We've heard today from Dr. Scott Egner at the University of Chicago about what cancer is and what it does in the body. We've heard from Suzanne Wagner about cancer's impact on her life. And now I want to turn to our panel, Rabbi Andrea London from Beth Emmett in Evanston, the Reverend Julian DeChazier of University Church in Hyde Park, and Imam Malik Mujahid, who's an imam in the Chicago area. One of the things that cancer is defined as is cells in the body mutating beyond control, there being chaos in the body. And for me, that brings up really interesting questions around not why God permits evil, which is its own question, but how and why and if God permits chaos to reign. This issue is a a major issue in Islamic theological thoughts. There is a whole lot written on it and a lot of positions. And so what does it mean to be God in control? You know, if God did that, how is that interpreted? And uh, the dominant position which emerged, which is now believed by most of the people, is God has set in place uh, principles and rules of this life. And through that, he's in control. He's all knowledgeable. He knows the future and present and the past, but those principles interact with themselves. And good and bad, which we perceive to be good and bad, happens through that. And nothing personally comforts me more than uh, there's a story, there is a chapter, People of Cave, uh, in the Quran. Within that, there is a story of Moses and a pious person. So it's a conversation between Moses and that person. There are three, four episodes which uh, Moses saw, and he thought it was wrong, and how come God is doing that? And that person will ask him to be patient, and finally he said, you know, you're not patient enough, and now we're going to part, but I will tell you whatever happened, which you thought is evil, has this purpose and this purpose and this purpose. So all the whole set of his story, which Muslims recite almost every Friday, 
It tells you the limits of human knowledge, increases the trust in God overall, but also it gives there are a whole lot which we don't know. So you become a humble listener and humble operator. Doctors do know something, and I asked one doctor when I was facing something, he said, how much of human body do you know? He started laughing at me. He said, well, maybe 5%, 10%. So what else do you do? He said, well, try something. Uh, sometime we know it works. Sometimes the guy doesn't come back. What happened to him, we have no idea. I was talking to an oncologist about this, and he said, you know, you could look at it as though it's chaos taking over, or you can look at it as though, isn't it amazing that the body stays in homeostasis the amount that it does? The amazing thing is that there is regeneration and there is stability because it could be complete chaos, and we know just a fraction of what causes it. And I think the the danger of a faith not critically practiced and read throughout our all of the experiences of our lives is that if I believe in God, my life will turn into homeostasis, right? That's not a critical read of our faith, of the text, of tradition, of reality, of anything, right? It's just kind of this feel-good gospel that exists in all versions of religion that, for me, makes a narrative like the book of Job so powerful. For me, it's my favorite text for sure because of the humility it creates, the listening that it demands upon humanity, the ways in which even in the midst of how excited we are about science and progress, that there's some things you cannot know. And in faith, you're going to have to be okay with that. I think one way to read through the chaos or randomness or mystery that Suzanne Wagner talks about with her own cancer diagnosis that you can hear in that a real faith that understands that some things just happen and that that's not a way of dismissing it or saying that it's not important or devastating and sometimes tragic, but it's a way of saying this is the reality. Signed up for it or not, that this is it. And now our responsibility is really about our response to those things and what we do, whether it's forming in community, whether it's prayer, whether it's seeking healing, you know, that whatever we do, becomes a, a faithful response to the chaos. I agree. I feel like sometimes religion is simplified, but religious traditions are much more sophisticated than that. I think that there are some people who look at religion as a way to answer all the unanswerable questions. And I think when we look at religion in that way, it can fall short because there are so many things that we can't answer. But when we look at religion in another way that it helps us to grapple with that which is unknowable and unanswerable, then we have a different approach. And that's really my approach to my religious faith, is how do I bring my faith to bear on that which I can't know? And I think that's what faith in God is about, is to say there is a greater mind of the universe that is not my mind. And linking myself with that greater mind of the universe, which I call God, is a way in which that I can begin to grapple with things. And it doesn't mean that there won't be pain, and it doesn't mean there won't be suffering, and it doesn't mean there won't be hardship or death. In the Jewish community, we celebrate our high holy days, the New Year, and then our Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. And at this time of the year, we ask the question, um, who's going to die by stoning and who's going to die by flood and who's, is this terrible thing going to happen and the next terrible thing going to happen? And it's a prayer of really expressing our tremendous vulnerability as being human in the world. 
and as religious people, how do we confront the reality of it and at the same time find ways in which we can live lives of dignity and worth and of value and, frankly, of satisfaction. And so the, the refrain of the prayer is, prayer, doing acts of righteousness and returning to each other in, in repentance returning to ourselves, returning to God, that these are things that are going to make a difference in our lives. They won't make things go away, but they will be our approach. And it says in the prayer that they will uh, help to ameliorate the harshness of the decree. Mm. And that word is really important, the harshness, because whatever the decree is, whatever it's going to be out there, we can't necessarily control it, but we can control our experience of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is so much of what she talks about is how her community becomes a very important place to work through the devastation of cancer. And I think that that grappling with living with something and the practices and prayers that you put into place in terms of it is really important also when we think about the concept of cancer not only as something that is chronic and that you live with, but also that there's this sense of the foreign or the foe or the enemy or something else that continues to exist in you. I think that's the the power of, to me, one of the most powerful prayers in the Christian tradition and, and one of the probably the most frequently said and probably the most frequently not well thought out in terms of when we say it. And that's the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when we say, thy will be done, you know, what's really being said right there a lot of times we just skip right past it, right? But this idea that there are some things that are going to happen, and in the midst of that, I should have an opportunity to, or I should take the opportunity to still be thankful. And then in the midst of that, in the same prayer, you know, give us this day, all these other kinds of moments where Jesus creates community. I think that becomes a model for how we should move in our lives, like embracing what's going on and then having community that's there with us in the midst of, whatever's going on and not saying like, hey, we don't care that you have cancer, but like, we know that this is a part of your identity, but it's not you. You are not a mutant. You are still you and you're dealing with this and you're going to need us. Suzanne talks about the ways in which healing for her is felt through community. And I mean, with the laying of the hands tradition and right, whether the healing actually happens or not, the healing happens in the ways in which we feel community. We feel God's love in that moment. We feel with people and we feel like in church or anywhere we go that there is now some place we can go mm-hmm. and be our full self or at least try to. And that that is healing. That to me is where the healing takes place. We like to make a distinction between healing and cure. Mm. That uh, we can't always be cured, but nice. we can find healing. That's nice. And I think religious community is, as Julian is saying, a really important place for healing because we welcome people into our midst and hold them in their illness and don't hold them as sick people, but as full human beings. Yeah, I think it is um, very important that the person is taken as a person not as a sick person. We pray and we heal, provide comfort, and be available whenever comfort, more comfort is sought, but treat them as a part of life and giving full space of each and everything they could do. Uh, Sometime being extra nice could be extra discomfort as well. Mm-hmm. Since, our, since our last 
gathering, my brother died of cancer mm-hmm. um, in June. So this is very raw for me to be having this conversation. And one of the things that my sister-in-law said to me recently when I visited her is that she can't go to the grocery store without people making her feel like she is odd and other. And she said, sometimes I go in with my sunglasses and my head down so that people will ignore me because I don't feel like people see me as a full human being. They see me as the widow. And when you said that, Malik, it just really struck me. She she wants to be seen as a full human being who's had this loss in her life. And people mean it to be comforting to her. It's not out of malice. It's actually out of really a generous heart that people want to recognize her pain. But when all she is is that, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually more painful. And I was really struck when she said that to me. This is the Holy Holy Podcast, and today we are talking about cancer and its impact in our lives and in our communities. I want to thank all of you who participated in our listener survey already. It has informed what we do as a show, how we think about things. And for any of you who are willing to take the listener survey, I would so appreciate your input as we help form who we are in this space and who we will become. The survey is extremely short, and you can take it at our website, holyholypodcast.com. One of the other things that comes with cancer is a body that is changed frequently from the treatment that is involved. When we think about our bodies as something that God has created and that we are endowed with in the image of God, how do we then think about our bodies still as being in the image of God when they look disfigured to us or when they feel significantly different or there are limitations in what they could once do that they no longer do? I think that's when we have to, as religious leaders, as faith communities, always be emphasizing the dignity of persons as persons. You know, not like persons because you have or persons because you can do X, Y, and Z, but your personhood, which comes through your being and is unchangeable, inalienable, and we're going to protect and uphold that as best we can. But that statement's more powerful when it's being said all the time and not just like after the diagnosis, you know, and we come up and tell them after they're wearing a hat because their hair is falling out or something like, you know, you're still a person. Like that's that's something that we should be emphasizing so that them going into treatment can understand. The power of faith communities in these moments is that when our body changes, and we all kind of know this viscerally, we can begin to hate ourselves, hate what we're going through, and really look at ourselves in a very negative and unloving and destructive way. To have people around us who are reminding us that we are loved by others, that the reality may not be as stark as we see it or as dark as we see it, and not only loved by others but loved by God, uh, can be an anchor in the midst of changing seas. And that's, I mean, that's not only with cancer. I think it's it's most potently felt there because it's so dramatic and sudden, but I mean, in aging and anything else, you know, just in preparing to make the transition in, in life into whatever the next season is, those things can be rough and harsh, and we don't always love ourselves well in the midst of that. And so faith communities and faith leaders, I think, are more 
powerful when we recognize that this person's probably not loving themselves awesome right now. You know, we're going to have to go double time in loving this person and do better at this. Yeah. Yeah, and emphasizing, I love what you're saying about emphasizing over time and time again that the personhood is what is most precious. The very act of existence and being, because for me, that's not my default thought when something happens, right? That's not my heart song, my mantra of, I am a created being. Yeah, Yeah. I am a child of God by sheer existence. And so to the extent that that's repetitive, that can be really powerful. I mean, that should be this thing we're saying, period, right? Like, you know, it's just not. And and then when it is said, it just ends up sounding like something you said because you're the pastor and you got to say something right now. Instead of it being like, okay, you hear me say this all the time. I'm, now it's just more contextually relevant for you. But like, you know what I'm about to say, right? Like, here, come get this hug now. Now we don't even have to do the talking. We can do more of the nonverbal and just the loving presence is more powerful and the listening is more powerful because you know what I'm about to say. I think we also live in a society in which we talk too much about the body and how people look. And so, therefore, when people feel like their body's changing in negative ways, it's going to have a greater impact, whereas religious people... As Julian's saying, we should be focusing on the soul, the soul that is immutable, the soul that is precious. And if we begin to change our language about how we talk about body all the time, I think it will have an impact. That is all the time we have for today. I am grateful to Dr. Scott Egner and Suzanne Wagner for their expertise from their life and work in talking to us about cancer. To Andrea London, Rabbi of Beth Emmett in Evanston for her participation. Our thanks and congratulations go out to Imam Malik Mujahid, who has just finished his term as the head of Parliament of World Religions. One of the things he did in that role was helped to create parity for both men and women at the most recent parliament in their interfaith dialogue. What a wonderful testament. And thanks also to Pastor Julian Deschazier, University Church in Hyde Park, who also goes by the hip-hop artist name J-Quest and has a great new album out called Lemonade. available for download on iTunes, and I can't imagine how many wonderful ways we can support him in this. Until next time, peace be with you.